This episode of Thrash It Out is supported by you, and that is because we are a completely independent and unbiased show with no sponsors or advertisers. Instead, we have a Patreon where you can support us directly and help keep the show on the air. Go to patreon.com slash thrash it out to pledge. This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian LaTenry, and today we are talking about the 1981 Def Leppard classic, High and Dry. 1981. (laughs) How many of our listeners were even born in 1981? (laughs) You know, the longer we do this show, the more I realize that music basically died after 1990. (laughs) Every time I go back and listen to these albums, I'm like, geez, it's just so good back then. It was so, so good. Uh, You know, know I disagree with you on that score. I know, I know. (laughs) And it's good to be back. It has been. We just looked at our last episode before the holiday special was November 11th. Yeah, November 11th. It has been a while. And that's, as I've said before, that's entirely my fault. I suddenly got very busy with lots of stuff going on. But we are back, and this is the first episode of Volume 2, first track of Volume 2. Uh, and uh, yeah, this one's going to be uh, an interesting season. Um, before we get into any other follow-up, the first thing we have to say is that, of course, in between us recording episodes and actually just a few days after we recorded the christmas special of course uh the world of metal lost one of its greatest if not possibly its greatest exponent um when lemmy kilmister died on the 26th of december 2015 and very suddenly i mean we knew he was sick but right. then there was this understanding that things had started to at least stabilize a little bit and and then boom and gone. then they just didn't yeah you and i had you know discussed i told you when i saw them at glastonbury um just on the on the tv i wasn't at the show but i saw the performance on the tv uh from glastonbury this year and i could just tell i the minute he stepped out into the stage i was like oh he's not well he's really not well um and uh, which, you know, is just a shame that that was their only Glastonbury appearance and therefore it wasn't really as good as it could have been. But let's, you know, let's focus on the man's life and what he achieved and what he gave us, what he gave to the world and especially the world of rock and roll and metal. Um, and just what an amazing man and what a huge, huge loss to uh, the, the rock music community. Yeah, and my exposure to Motorhead and and Lemmy in general was he he was always this like I think for everybody this larger than life figure. But in the early MTV days, Ace of Spades was of course my introduction right. to him over in the U.S. And I was never a huge Motorhead fan like in my early days of becoming a metal fan. And I kind of came to them a little bit later when I started delving into when I started sort of expanding my taste and sure. really came to love Motorhead and, and saw them twice in concert, probably in the last 15 years, I saw them once with Anthrax and I saw them once with Megadeth on Gigantour. And both times they were one of the greatest live bands that I've ever seen. And that to me is like what we've talked about on the show before, like one of those things where certain bands, when you see them live, it gives you a whole new appreciation for what, for what they, they do. do. Yeah. 
and Motorhead was just a force of nature live. I'll never forget the, what Lemmy said the first time I ever saw them with Anthrax. He, he came out on stage and he said, we are Motorhead and we're going to clean your clock. And then he just played for two, like an hour and a half, however yeah. long their set was. <laughs> it just song after song after song after song. It was a relentless assault of rock and metal that I just remember saying to my friend, like, holy crap, we had no idea. What yeah. we had no idea how good these guys were until we saw them live. Well, and that's the thing that kills me. Uh, I should probably do Motorhead on Unjustly Maligned or something like. <laughs> yeah, they they were such good songwriters, and Lemmy was a damn good bass player. He was a really good, good bass player, and he did not get the credit for that that he should have. Um, yeah, they were musically just really good, innovative, and interesting, as well as being heavy as fuck. You know. Um, so yeah, I, I was. Uh, my, uh, my missus literally came up at like, uh, I think it was 2am in the morning here. Um, and I was sort of semi asleep. I was in bed, but I wasn't quite, you know, fully asleep. Uh, and she, she'd been, um, she was still awake checking social media and stuff. And she came upstairs and told me and said like, you know, we've just heard Lemmy's died. And that was it. I didn't sleep for the next, you know, I barely got any sleep that night basically. Cause. Uh, well, especially when you start thinking of like. You know, we're we're doing a podcast about rock and heavy metal, so obviously it, it goes without saying that this music is such a woven into the fabric of our entire lives. Sure, and you just start thinking about the memories and the events in your life and the different albums that you could mark a lot of those events by, and oh, the yeah, bands yeah, that yeah. you were listening to at the time, and 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 you just start to you're mourning their passing, but you're also mourning just how involved you music has become in your life in in these moments that you've shared with these bands and it's uh it's overwhelming well and the shame for me when when this sort of uh you know when somebody especially a musician passes is that you know you think well that's it we're not going to get any more new music from them and that's a really selfish way to think about it but you know that thought does for me anyway that thought does go through my mind to think ah i'll never hear another new motorhead record you know? And it makes you think a lot about legacy too, obviously, because then yeah, you think yeah. about like, man, I'm so glad we got however many albums from this band. I'm so glad that I can go back and listen to that. And it's the same with writers and, and stuff like that, where, you know, the great thing about Motorhead is because of their output, you just have such a great catalog of material to go back and listen to yeah. forever. Yeah. And, and And their music is evergreen, you know? And so it's, it really That's is because kind of a, one of the things I did, as I always do when something like this happens, is I immediately spent the next few days just listening to my entire Motorhead collection. Uh, and even the early stuff, yeah, you know, some of the production's a bit dodgy in places. But, um, but even the early stuff, you're just like, oh my God, this is still, still really heavy, you know, like pounding rock music. Yeah, you know, it may not be as sort of sonically heavy as some of the really ultra metal bands that you get nowadays but it is nevertheless you know you could play that to some guy off the street who isn't a metalhead even motorhead's albums from like you know stuff like bomber and overkill from the late 70s yep. and they would still blow people's ears off <laughs> it's amazing and the, the thing that's crazy to me about motorhead that that makes them special is you have here you have what is essentially a rock band that because of how they play and the sound that they create as a band, their metal, even though the 
the structure of their songs is very rock and roll. Oh yeah. You know, they're they're like the heaviest rock and roll band in the history of the universe. Well, and, and, and Lemmy so they, famously, you know, always said, "We're not a heavy metal band. We are just a rock and roll band that plays really loud." <laughs> yeah, they're they're a, they're a dive bar rock and roll band that just blows you away and and that that to me is is just so fascinating about like rock metal that is so heavy that it's metal like right. that you know yeah. what i mean yeah, like yeah. it's it's it, it, and and i just love that about them is that they you know their whole everything louder than everything else is just true well, and and that's the two kind of there are two schools of metal really aren't there you know there is there's the sabbath school of metal where you specifically are writing music that is like kind of off key and atonal and rhythmic and you know is deliberately trying to be apart and is trying to be what we now call metal. And then right. you have rock and roll that is just played with real intensity and really loud and with lots of distortion and stuff. You know, and that is the Motorhead, the Guns N' Roses, indeed the Def Leppard, that side yep. of, you know, the Motley Crue, that's that side of metal. Um you know, it's, they're both, I mean, you can prefer one over the other and, you know, everybody knows I certainly do, but they are both equally sort of as long lived, really, you know, they're two yeah, very- Yeah, Motorhead to me is kind of the, the, the core of that spectrum. Yeah. You know, they are the right band in that the proves yeah. that these two, what some might want to say are two different genres of music are in fact- always connected and, yeah. and held together and they are they are sort of the center point of that spectrum yeah anyway no more motorhead um phil campbell no. and mickey d you know said pretty much immediately and rightly so you know you can't you lemmy was motorhead how could you possibly continue motorhead without lemmy you you literally can't it's impossible so right yeah no more motorhead um godspeed to those guys you know i'm sure they will both end up doing something else equally great um but yeah, another guy that we talked about last year too passed away a little more than a month later, and that was uh, Dio and Rainbow bassist Jimmy Bain. Yes, uh, who you know, if if you heard our Holy Diver episode, then you know how I feel about Dio and and that band. And he was a part of a music project now called Last in Line with Vinnie Appice and with uh, Vivian Campbell, which were the three original members that played with Dio when they formed the original band and they were about to release a new album. In fact, I think it comes out later this month as we record this and the music sounded amazing. I posted a video up on, uh, it's called star maker from this band up on our Facebook page and it just sounded great. And, and to lose another guy who I think sometimes would get overshadowed, especially for people that didn't know that band and each of their members, you know, very well. It's right. easy to overlook the bass player a lot of times, unfortunately. And Jimmy Bain, though, when you go back and listen to those early Dio albums, like he is, he is holding that whole thing together. Especially when you have a vocalist like Dio, who is kind of all over the place and singing over people's. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he, no, exactly. he paid attention to no structure, so <laughs> the rhythm section becomes even more important in that band. And so he he was just so great, and he didn't look great in the video, you know, that I posted and, and some of his more recent appearances. So you could tell that he was he was getting up there and maybe wasn't doing so well. But yeah, it was it was sad to see him pass as well. And uh, and again, just an, another guy who we won't hear new music from but who has this great legacy of stuff that he's done over the years so it uh, i dug out my my early albums and started listening to that stuff again and then you know smack dab in the middle of that you throw bowie in there and it was uh, it's been a rough 
Yeah, I was just going to mention Bowie. Time. I mean, Bowie obviously, you know, isn't. We can't really talk too much about him on a metal show because even though Bowie dabbled with you know heavy rock at times, he never really ventured into metal. Um, however, anybody who wants to hear me talk about Bowie at length, uh, I will direct them to a couple of shows I did. My other podcast, Unjustly Maligned, after Bowie's death, I got together with my old friend uh, Chris Mitchell and talked about Tin Machine on episode 45. So that's at ump.fm slash 45. Um, Tin Machine was Bowie's like sort of hard rock side project that he did to renew his creative energies. Um, and is actually, you know, a lot of people run it down, but it was actually really good. Um, and, uh, and then on the main show of the incomparable, which is the network where, uh, and Justin Maligned is also published uh, on the main show, episode 283, we did uh, a Bowie remembrance episode called the stars look very different today. Um, and that just go to the incomparable.com and uh, look for the main incomparable show. And you'll find that there, episode 283. So you can hear me talk at length about my love of, of Bowie. And if you go, are on our Facebook page at all, then you know that David Richardson also does a podcast called Shuffle Sounds, and they did an episode on Black Star. Yes. So you can go and check that out as well. Yes, indeed. Uh, also, uh, just sort of as an aside, um, I'm not sure if this will be published by the time this goes live, but if not, then if it is, great. If it not, then, you know, keep an eye out for it. But also on the main Incomparable show, uh, we just did an album draft. Anybody who listens to The Incomparable knows that Jason, the guy who runs the network, loves doing drafts. And uh, we did our favourite albums draft. And I was on there. And uh, it was just, we just picked a bunch of our favourite albums. Um, there is lots of non-metal on there because I tried to keep things, you know, varied for the sort of listeners. It has a much broader listening base. Um, but naturally, Paradise Lost did get the number one spot from me. Oh. So <laughs> there is some. And then Shocker. I did a, a big, a big rundown of sort of, other metal stuff at the end uh, in a like a five minute tirade of all of my favorite metal albums, which was quite amusing. So uh, yeah, you can, uh, when that's published, you can go and listen to that as well and hear me, you know, ramble on about non-metal music. <laughs> well, and speaking of favorite bands, I would be remiss if I did not mention that my favorite band of all time, oh, yes. Megadeth just released their new album dystopia and it is destroying the charts. They are doing very well with it. It's oh, been they? critically oh, acclaimed. Well, yep. Very, very, uh, in fact, it was number three on the Billboard 200, I believe. Wow! Uh, behind like freaking Adele and like I forget who else, whoever's at the top of the probably charts. Beyonce or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Whatever is it a return to form then? It is without a doubt. It, it's a return to form, but I will tell you right now, man. If you haven't listened to Lamb of God and you don't know uh, Chris Adler's drumming, his drums on this album are bringing something to Megadeth that they, I don't think they've had since Gar Samuelson passed, you know, from the early days of right. Megadeth. Like, and I just heard an interview with Chris Adler on the Eddie Trunk podcast, which is a great podcast. Everybody should check out. Um, if you ever watch that metal show, he's the host of that. And he has a radio show where he interviews people. And Chris Adler was basically saying that Megadeth was his favorite band of all time. And so when Dave Mustaine approached him about drumming for Megadeth. He like lost his mind. He's a huge Gar <laughs> Samuelson fan. He but his bass technique and just the way he hits those skins, man, it just brings a whole new element to the Megadeth sound. And then Kiko Larrero from Angra, who is their new guitar player, has the flair of a guy like Marty Friedman, but also has has a style that is is very distinctive from him as well. And so this is a, a super heavy album and it's back to the sort of snarling, venomous, growly type of stuff that 
uh, I would hope to get from Mustaine as opposed to the you know love songs that were on the last Super Collider album. So yeah, it completely it is a return to form for them for sure, and it's the best album they've put out since Endgame in 2009, which I was my last album that I really loved from them. But yeah, super excited uh, just to have one of my favorite bands putting out great music again, and we get Anthrax later this month, which oh. everything I've read and heard about that album as it's starting to leak out now, is just fantastic as well. So you've got Slayer, who put a fantastic one out last year. You've got Megadeth, who is right back there with a sound that you'd expect from them. And now you have Anthrax. That Their album is called For All Kings, and I think it comes out the last week of February. That's coming out soon. So for, for the big four, the three of them that still make music these days are putting out some of the best albums of their uh, of their careers right now, which is really awesome. Fantastic. Also, uh, along those lines, not the big four, as we've discussed, but, you know, part of maybe the big ten, um, Testament are working on a new album. Uh, it's oh, called, I know. It's called The Brotherhood of the Snake, and it is supposed to be out sometime this year. I cannot wait for that, because their last album, Dark Roots of Earth, was just, you know, amazing. So, so heavy, so good. Um, totally agree. Love that album. So, yeah. And I think I really saw them on that tour... Oh, probably they're taught all the fucking time. Ever since, ever since Chuck Billy got like you know recovered from the cancer scare, uh, yeah. they've just seemed to have been touring constantly. Yeah, and I think it was with Slayer and Megadeth at that point. I think that's when Slayer was playing the whole seasons in the Abyss album, right? Uh, that, that I saw them with that. But uh, and, and speaking of concerts, I will wrap up my news updates with uh, the fact that I just saw Queensrÿche in concert at the end of January. Oh, and you took your son, didn't you? I did take my son, my nine-year-old son, who has grown up listening to 80s rock and metal since he was born and absolutely loves it. We went to see our first concert together, and this was the first time I had seen Queensryche with their new singer, Todd Latour, who has been there for two or three years now. And their two albums that he's put out with them have been fantastic. They were great in concert. They played everything that you would want them to play from early Queensryche uh, and you know Operation Mindcrime and that stuff, and then their new stuff as well. And it was a small venue. The Worcester Palladium is a is a pretty pretty small venue, and we just had a great vantage point. I'll put up a couple pictures when we, if I haven't put them on the Facebook page yet, I'll put up a couple ones. But he was mesmerized, and for me, watching him watch this show and just be completely blown away by the live experience was like this was the beginning. Right. You know, and, yeah, and it yeah, also yeah. was the graduation from the stuff that he's been listening to for so long. And so you are uh, ready, did, my son. <laughs> yeah, and I did make him wear earplugs, and for the first time, I wore earplugs. And I never—I was always one of those guys who were anti earplugs at metal shows and stuff like that. But I believe that I have a low-level case of uh, tinnitus mm -hmm. from all of my years of not wearing earplugs at concerts. So I decided that if I wanted to model for him the fact that he needed to wear those and he didn't want to wear them. You know, he was like, I don't want to wear earplugs, dad. And then in between bands, one of his earplugs came out and just the music playing on the radio as they were setting up the things, he was blown away at how loud it was. So he got right, it right. And, he, and he wore them <laughs> after that, but he loved it. He, the first, it literally the second the lights came up after the show, he just turned to me and said, that was awesome. Excellent. And so, yeah, I'm super psyched about that. And it was great to see Queensrigg again. And I see Megadeth in March with suicidal tendencies and oh, i cannot nice. freaking wait to see that and are you taking him to that as well 
That one is not an all-ages show, and that's a problem oh, okay. that I've been seeing around here is a lot of the venues that have metal shows around here are, are not all-ages. Um, is that because but- they serve alcohol or – it is, but so does the Palladium, this place that we went to, and they've always been all ages. And it's yeah. a place where we do, there's a heavy metal and horror convention that we do in October called Rock and Shock that has concerts all day. And we know the person who books the shows for this venue, and they have a sister venue in Hartford, Connecticut, which is about an hour and a half away from where the one in Worcester is. And they're both all ages. So yeah, I know at least I have two places that I can take him to see these shows. But yeah, it's it's a bummer because he wants to see Megadeth because he knows that that's my favorite band and he's heard enough of them over the years that uh, that he's pretty familiar with their catalog. So excellent, excellent. Yeah, passing on to the next generation. Yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, just before we get into the album, one other thing: we have had some new uh, patrons, which I believe you have the list of. Yes, so we have Jack Chambers, we have Mohammed Saman, we have Nils Liebscher, we have Phil Toretto, and we have Brendan Cahill, who all have joined the Patreon since the last time that we recorded, and we thank them for their support. And we've also had a bunch of people who have gone onto Twitter and have gone onto our Facebook group and have been spreading the word about the podcast. And it's we're just continually thankful and humbled by the support that the show is getting. And you know, even when we're we're on a brief hiatus in between seasons, to see the show gaining momentum is just really exciting, and it made us like chomping at the bit to come back and and start, you know, season two, volume two, volume, volume two. two. You can- I do that all the time. <laughs> you keep saying seasons. We're not a TV show. <laughs> One of these days, you're going to reach right through the computer and throttle me. <laughs> but no, seriously, uh, yeah. Thank you to those guys. Thank you to everyone else who is already a patron and continues to support us. You know, as we say, we, we really do mean it that, you know, your support helps keep the show going because, uh, you know, we don't take ads. We don't take sponsors. We're not on a network. We don't get any financial support for the show other than listeners. So thank you. You We really do appreciate that. And the other thing that we're thankful for is just the continued stream of great music recommendations that keep coming from people that listen to the show. So one of my favorite things is when, Someone will go on Twitter or will go on the Facebook page and talk about how they had never heard of a band that we had talked about or they had heard of them only in passing and they went and checked out their catalog and they're a fan of them. Well, for every one of those, we get like five recommendations. We get them back, yeah. It's unbelievable. (laughs) So my – and I have uh, Amazon Prime Music now as part of my subscription. So I am constantly – adding albums that people are just shouting out all over the place. And so, uh, and people are putting them up on the Facebook page and stuff like that. So keep the music recommendations coming because even if we don't necessarily do an episode about something that you're putting out there, I can tell you that there have been plenty of bands that I am now a fan of right? because well, of recommendations that people have made. And also, you know, we often, I mean, if it's on the Facebook group, everybody there can see it. And if it's a tweet, we often retweet it. So other people are, you know, also hearing you, recommend this stuff um so yeah it's always worth doing totally there, there was what was the latest one on the facebook i think it was triosphere H- was the one that we got that on it. twitter from right. Brendan Cahill. that's it triosphere yeah yeah oh was that on uh, twitter sorry not on facebook that was on twitter but we've gotten some awesome ones on facebook as well um i'm just looking at our page real quick so i put up the uh, last in line one star maker which is a video if you haven't seen you should check that out 
there was a whole conversation about baby metal that went up on our, oh, yeah. on our uh, Facebook <laughs> yeah. page. There's, uh, there's been a lot of good stuff on there. So, oh, we had a conversation about At The Drive-In, which is a band that's going to be getting back together and putting out new right. music. We ended yeah. up talking about Sparta and, and stuff like that. So, it, you know, even though it doesn't necessarily stick to our wheelhouse, like the conversations and the music recommendations are going yeah. all it's over all the good. place. It's all good. And it's all good. Yeah. All right. Let us get then to the album. And uh, yeah, Def Leppard. Still going, formed many years ago. <laughs> Love it. I think a lot of people forget that Def Leppard were part of the original, you know, Nwobum, the new wave of British heavy metal. Everybody thinks of obviously bands like Maiden, but I think a lot of people forget that Def Leppard have been around that long. They were part of that movement, and there was a time where they deserved to to be part of that movement. And I think when you mention the the band Def Leppard to people today, you well, they think of reactions. Hysteria. Yeah, well, or you and right. So there, there's so maybe three reactions. One is people who knew them through hysteria. Two is people who think that they're a pop band and don't want to continue the conversation longer than that. <laughs> and three are people like me who will tell you that the band died after hysteria, and, and maybe with hysteria, but before that, were one of the greatest bands of all time. Like there is, you know, no, there is of, no second Elastica album. You know, <laughs> exactly. So they're there's sort of those three groups of people. And I am in that third group. I am a person who believes that the first three albums that Def Leppard put out were just flat out amazing and that they deserve to be in the conversation of one of the greatest, certainly rock bands of all time. Um, if not, you know, rock metal bands of all time. And one of the albums, the album that we're going to talk about today is their second album high and dry, which I think personally is by far their best album of all the stuff that they've put out. Um, even though pyromania is the one that people will often point to as the, the sort of height of their heavy and, uh, sort of respectable, if you will, kind of career. But for those of you who would poo poo Def Leppard, here's just a couple facts about them. Uh, they have sold over 100 million albums worldwide. Jesus. Right. Uh, pyromania and hysteria, their third and fourth albums, respectively, were both certified diamond by the Recording Industry Association of America, which means that they have each sold over 10 million copies. Uh, there are very few rock or metal bands that have sold diamond albums, period. And only three Let of them... two. I, yeah, <laughs> three of them uh, have, have two or more on the list. Uh, Zeppelin has five. Right. Van Halen has two, and Pink Floyd has two. Van Halen, everybody really? Else, wow. Yep, everybody else is pop acts on on the, right, uh, yeah. on the diamond list, and so they're in very, very, very rare territory as in terms of success. They are one of the biggest rock bands in the history of music, um, which is crazy because they're almost never in the conversation. Absolutely, and I think it's because of the fact that their most passionate fans are ones that long since really stopped paying attention to them. And so they enjoy a lot of commercial success because what they are now is a band that sort of crosses over into pop territory. And so they are very mainstream successful, but the the people who would be talking about them in the rock and metal shops are not. That conversation ended in 1987 with Hysteria. Right. And so it's, they're, they're a fascinating band in that way because they are. And, of course, you're talking about Pyromania and Hysteria, which is what they built their, their legacy on. Although I will say this. I haven't listened to it yet, but the new Def Leppard album, which is a self-titled album that just came out, I have heard good things about. But I have not listened to the new album yet. For, for me, 
On Through the Night, High and Dry, and Pyromania are the three Def Leppard albums that I listen to frequently, and High and Dry is the one that I listen to constantly. Right. See, you say for a lot of people the conversation stopped after Hysteria. For me, it kind of started and stopped around Hysteria. I, I, I knew of them. Obviously, you know, being British and being a, a rock music fan, of course, I'd heard of Def Leppard, but I really wasn't familiar with them at all uh, until they hit the heights of Hysteria. Hysteria was a much bigger hit over here than Pyromania was. Pyromania uh-huh. was a big hit in the US, but uh, not so much over here, whereas over here it was it really was Hysteria that sent them into the UK, you know, top of the charts. Um, and that was the first time that I'd really been exposed to them and they were in Kerrang every week and they were you know on MTV all the time and top of the charts and that and I just wasn't impressed at all. Um, oh, I don't blame you. I I, I read some because they were in Kerrang every week. I read some interviews and stuff with them and they came across as nice guys and they're from Sheffield and they you know they despite the fact that they're all clearly you know insanely wealthy now they came across as even then they were they came across as pretty down to earth guys. You know Joe Elliott seems like a fairly sound guy, but musically. They just did absolutely nothing for me. You know, tracks like Animal and Pour Some Sugar on Me. Ugh, I was awful. just like, this is, wow, you know, this is not what I want the world to think of when, you know, <laughs> when we're preaching the word of metal. <laughs> you are absolutely correct. And, and and I'm glad that is actually one of the reasons that I chose Def Leppard in this album to talk about. Because right. I do feel like there are a lot of people whose exposure to Def Leppard was primarily hysteria. And when they heard it, if they were metal fans, they were like, oh, this is bubblegum yeah garbage like animal if you if you look at the lyrics some of the lyrics on on hysteria are the worst lyrics in the history of music just awful like some just of the complete... lyrics on high and dry aren't exactly shakespeare well, dude. they're not shakespeare no <laughs> but but when you look i like pull up the lyrics to pour some sugar on me and oh yeah just, no that's just, just awful. Yeah, like yeah. curl into yourself as as you are try to wrap your mind around how a human being came up with those words. But uh, yeah, so so for many of us who were Def Leppard fans, like Hysteria signaled the end of that period of time because the first sing- single that they released off of Hysteria was Women. And Women, unfortunately, is the heaviest song on that entire album. Maybe Gods of War is, is another one. And there are songs that I like on Hysteria, and I am still waiting for some fan out there to put together a cut of Hysteria where they strip away much of the overproduced uh, elements of that album and bring the instruments to the forefront because there is a rock album in there, but you can't hear it. When right, you buried to under it. the mix. Oh, it's just buried under the mix and the, and the, the vocals are so overproduced. It's, it's, it makes today's auto-tuning look like these guys were the pioneers <laughs> of that back in the day. So, but it's in there, but there's some good songs in there. But Women came out and people were like, oh, okay, well, this isn't as heavy as Pyromania and High and Dry, but it still sounds like the Def Leppard that I know. And then you come to find out that's the only, that's one of the only songs on the album that, right. that sounds like the Def Leppard that you knew. And then it just got worse from there. And one of the reasons that it got worse from there is because uh, Steve Clark passed away. He passed away after Hysteria, but by the time Hysteria came out, they had already parted ways with Pete Willis, who was the original guitar player, along with Steve Clark of Def Leppard. And as you'll hear on this album, High and Dry, Pete Willis and Steve Clark together were a bluesy, very ACDC-influenced guitar duo that gave Def Leppard their signature sound in the late 70s and early 80s. Pete Willis had started recording Pyromania and was fired during the recording of that, and they brought in Phil Collins. 
And when Phil Collin came in, between his influence and, and I believe Joe Elliott's influence as they got into their later years, their sound started to move away from that very, um, the, the heavier, you know, hard rock type of stuff and get more into the pop area as time went along. So Pete, for, for those of us that are old school Def Leppard fans, like you'll hear Pete Willis's name thrown around a lot as the, right. as the guy who, once he left, it all started to go downhill from there. And then, of course, when Steve Clark passed away, that was sort of the, the nail in the coffin for them because they had Phil Collin. And then they brought in who we thought would be this amazing addition to the band in Vivian Campbell. But Vivian Campbell is the Kirk Hammett of Def Leppard. He's a guy who, when you look at his legacy, you know, Kirk Hammett played in Exodus before he came over to Metallica. And, and then you watch some kind of monster and you see how they basically put the handcuffs on Kirk Hammett when he came into there. It's the same thing with Vivian Campbell and Def Leppard. There is nothing in Def Leppard that Vivian Campbell has been allowed to contribute or play that would lead you to believe that that was the same guy that played in Dio. Right, yeah. Um, and it's very sad to see that, which is why I think he's doing these projects like Last in Line now, because he wants to get back to playing some actual music. Right. And you can see that in the in the Star Maker video that I posted on Facebook. So, um, But Pete Willis, man, Pete Willis and Steve Clark together, and a young Rick Allen, and a, a young and rougher Joe Elliott and, and Rick Savage, like that, that band had a great sound. And they also had one of the greatest producers of all time who is just a, a mystery to this day but is one of the most amazing rock producers of all time which is mutt lang right mutt lang is well, the guy and, who and you and you said they were acdc influenced and getting mutt lang in to produce this album you know just turned that influence up to 10 you can tell that just by listening to it you're like yep yeah this sounds a bit like an acdc album <laughs> so between 1979 and 1984 Mutt Lang produced Highway to Hell for ACDC, Back in Black for ACDC, Foreigner 4 in 1981, which is Foreigner's like, is an amazing Foreigner album, uh, High and Dry, For Those About to Rock from ACDC, Pyromania for Def Leppard, and Heartbeat City for the Cars. So that, that's in the span of five years. This guy has his guy. hand in these albums that were hugely successful and and landmark albums for a, a lot of these bands and so what he what i feel like he brings to a project is this sort of um he gives it a middle you know for a lot of bands in, from production standpoint you can hear the highs and lows right. but the middle is kind of flat for some reason like mutt lang seems to be able to bring out that middle range of sound sonically for a band. And I think he did that on Highway to Hell, which is an album that, you know, who knows, maybe we'll talk about at some point, but that that's my favorite ACDC album because of the work that he's done there and the work that he did with Bon Scott in, in that album. And so um, the, the sound that Def Leppard had at that point in time to me is just such a fun sound. And it sounded like they're having fun playing the, the, the songs. And, and, and it, you know, to me, High and Dry has a feel of like, it's almost like you're listening in on them playing a very small gig or almost listening in on them in the studio or in the garage, you know, kind of playing. It just has that kind of, uh, that kind of fun vibe where they're well, it's, almost, it's a party album. It's, you it know, is, it's, it's clearly a party album. And you, uh, you, you talk about the like blues influences. And I think that's the key with the sound is that the guitars on pretty much all of those albums that you just listed, actually, um, sound like bluesy guitars. They don't sound like metal guitars. They're not all treble. 
um, or even all bass, you know, like like a lot of modern uh, metal tunings, they they have lots and lots of middle in the guitar sound, which is a very gives it but overdriven rather than distorted. So it gives it that very kind of warm bluesy sound. And they all have that. ACDC has had it for years and maybe Mutt Lang gave them that sound. I don't know, but they've had that for years. And certainly on this album, um, you know, Def Leppard have got it here. Well, and, yeah. And, and so that's kind of what I, I just, they think, I think they have a very full sound and I think the same thing with ACDC around that time. And, to me, like Def Leppard at this point in their career, working with Mutt Lang, coming off of On Through the Night, which was a very, which is a great rock. There's some of the best Def Leppard songs are on On Through the Night. You've got Wasted, you've got Hello America, you've got Rock Brigade. Uh, for people who like Def Leppard, they know those songs. Those are, those are very popular songs in, in their catalog. And then they come into High and Dry, which I, I think for Def Leppard was sort of the pinnacle of, of a lot of that early sound for them. And when I listen to this album, I think about how ACDC influenced it is. And I think about what would have happened if they continued on this trajectory. They were basically creating a, a sound that was a little more complex than what ACDC was doing, but still very much in the spirit and vein of that music. And I, I feel like they could have went on to have to be thought of as sort of a, a spiritual successor of ACDC had they continued in that track. I well, mean, obviously, they, they went on to become super successful. So I was going like to say, you, you, you may be wondering if maybe that's why they changed tack a little bit, because who, wants, who wants to be like the second best ACDC? You know, we've already got ACDC. We don't need another one. Um, so, that you know, maybe that's why they changed tack and went more poppy and commercial for stuff like Hysteria. I don't doubt that at all. And I, and I think, and selfishly, I wanted them to stay, <laughs> you know, on that track because yeah. I love ACDC. Yeah, yeah. And, and for me, like this was almost bridging that this was taking what ACDC was doing and just adding a little more complexity to it. And it just hit this sweet spot for me where I was like, Oh, I want more of this. And pyromania was a bit more of that, but it started to lean into the type of overproduction that you would hear from hysteria on. And to the point now where it sounds like someone's making that entire album, in garage band with you know fake people and <laughs> right. fake instruments and everything like that so but this this doesn't sound like that at all the one thing i will um, say is i mean this is you know to, to nobody's surprise who's a regular listener of the show this is not really my thing uh at all and you know this album certainly i didn't want to like you know throw it out the window like uh, you know i would with some sort of pop rock albums that i could name but uh it is you know it's a bit too cock rocky uh, a bit too sort of soft really for me however however the one thing i will give it credit for is it does not sound now like an album from 1981 um because it sounds like a late 80s like glam rock you know like motley crew album or something uh sure. they were clearly way ahead of their time i i admit i hadn't realized before but yeah listening to this you're like wow okay these guys were like five six years ahead of the curve they were clearly innovators uh and yeah just really thinking far ahead which i'd never really realized before because i haven't listened to this sort of early era of def leppard but that i thought was really impressive nobody else in 1981 was making this sort of music and frankly most people wouldn't for another five years and that is really impressive regardless of whether you like the music or not that's like you know that's worthy of respect and and my hope with 
this episode of the show is that there are people who only know Def Leppard from Hysteria on. Right. Well, who like will me. at least yeah. go back and listen to this and be like, oh, these guys were a rock band back in the day and yeah. they made some pretty <laughs> catchy tunes. Even if it's not my kind of thing, they made some catchy tunes and they, you know, they 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 could play. And, you know, and and this band has suffered just unbelievable tragedies over the years. I mean, when you look back in yeah, 1984, yeah, yeah. Rick Allen was in the car accident where he lost his arm. And that was basically what they thought was going to be the end of him being the drummer for Def Leppard. And for those that weren't paying attention to them in that scene at that time, like when he had a custom drum kit built so that he could play the drums with one arm, that was unbelievable. That was like, that was unheard of. Yeah. It was the freaking future at the time. Like that was crazy. And so when that, and that's one of the reasons that Hysteria had so much momentum when it released is that you had people who were waiting for the successor to Pyromania, which is one of the most successful albums we just mentioned. It went diamond. You know, people are expecting Def Leppard to come back. Then they hear the drummer was in an accident and he lost his arm. And so you go from 1983 to 1987. So it's four years before Hysteria comes out and people were just chomping. Oh, wow. Was it that long between the albums? Wow. It was because you had On Through the Night was 80. A year later, you get High and Dry. And then two years later, you get Pyromania. So in a short span of time, you got a lot of Def Leppard and you thought you knew what Def Leppard was. And then four years go by, you have Rick Allen get in the car accident. They they rebuild his drum kit. They bring him back. And then they come out with Hysteria. And then after they come out with Hysteria in 1991, you have Steve Clark pass away. And he died from an overdose of codeine, and he also, you know, had a blood alcohol level of 0.30, and he was having a ton of problems at the time. And this continued a history of substance abuse in the band because Pete Willis lost his spot in Def Leppard because he was drinking so heavily that he couldn't even record some of the stuff that they were doing for Pyromania. And that's when they brought Phil Collin in to replace him. So this band has just gone through this amazing amount of turmoil, and then – Hysteria Forward, they continue to be one of the biggest rock bands of all time. And so even though I sort of mourned the loss of my Def Leppard when Hysteria came out, like it's it's pretty damn impressive what they've been able to continue to do. I mean, they just had a, a residency yeah, that, in Las resilient. Vegas for a year. Yeah, it is super resilient, right? And they and they've been able to evolve so that they are a band that you will hear on a rock station, but you'll also hear them on a pop station. They, they've been able to make that crossover to where they uh, they can get played anywhere, they can play with anyone, they can tour with any type of band and and still be able to sort of fit in with them. But but this stuff, this old stuff, is just good old-fashioned rock and roll. And, and at the time, High and Dry wasn't the most successful album in the world. It came out and it hit number 38 on the Billboard 200 in the U.S. and it hit number 26 on the U.K. albums chart. Both this and Pyromania went on to become much more successful after Hysteria came out and people started to dig back into their back catalog. Um, For me, High and Dry was not the first album that I got from Def Leppard. It was Pyromania. And I thought Pyromania when I first got it. I remember there was a summer where I listened to that album every day, all day, on vacation, on the beach, everywhere I went, I listened to Pyromania. And then I started to dig back and I was like, holy crap, High and Dry is even better. And so then it it just became one of my favorite albums of all time. But, uh, but I think yeah. it's worth saying uh, that even 26 on the album charts in the UK is actually not bad because we're talking about a time where people used to sell a lot of records. Like, you know, getting anywhere near right. the top 25 in any record chart in 1981 meant that you were selling a lot of copies. 
You know, yeah, maybe not as much as if you were number one, of course, by definition, but that's not nothing. You know, it's not like they debuted at number 78 and then vanished. <laughs> and just to give you an idea, they were opening for Ozzy right. at the time that yeah. this album came out. That's who they were to. They were touring with Ozzy Osbourne when this album came out. So they were in that scene and they were, uh, they were a part of it at the time, more on the metal side than on the sort of pop rock side. Right. Well, although, you know, Ozzy's solo stuff, you know, definitely veered away from the, uh, you know, from the metal of Black Sabbath sure. more towards the kind of mainstream rock sound. Yep. So actually, yeah, I can imagine that probably would have been a really good fit. So yeah, so that's just a little background on the band. And, I, and the, the last thing I'll leave you with around that is if you don't know who Mutt Lang is, go and look him up on Wikipedia and just look at the albums that he yeah. has been involved <laughs> with. And if you like this particular style of Def Leppard, there's a lot of albums that he had a part in that you will hear that familiar. Right. That you will probably like as well. You yeah. exactly. You will yeah. find a lot of goodness to dig into there. And he's uh, just that, that, that couple year period where he hit ACDC foreigner and Def Leppard. I mean, just huge, huge albums that yeah. he, his signature sound is on. I hope he negotiated royalties. <laughs> you know, what's funny about him is he's like this mystery man who doesn't like to be interviewed. He has not, he, like you'll, if you search for him online, you'll see like one or two pictures of him because right. he has a history of buying the pictures that people take of him and not allowing them to be put out there. And even oh. in this internet age, like you will not find a lot of interviews with Mutt Lang. He's does them very few and far between. Uh, he was married, I think, to Shania Twain for a bunch of years. There's a lot. There's some other drama that happened in his life, but as a producer, like he preferred to be in the background, and mm. you know, so so his his work is out there in in a lot of big names that he's worked with, but he's not out there. Huh. All right. So yeah, high and dry. Uh, 1981, ten songs, forty three minutes. It's about you know that's fine. Um, What's the, you know, so that's an average of 4.3 minutes, I guess, per song, um, which is, yeah, you know, we've talked about album length before and that that's fine. And it goes quicker than that even sounds. Like when you're listening to it, by the end of it, it doesn't feel like you've been listening for three quarters of an hour. No, they do not waste time in between tracks here. These tracks, even there's a couple that are meant to flow into one another, but in, in particular one, but these, they don't waste time in between. And uh, in, this album was reissued in 1984, and it actually had a remix of Bring It On The Heartbreak, and it had another song called Me And My Wine, which is a decent song, but you don't miss it right. on this, yeah. this uh, you know, main cut of 10 tracks here. This is, this is the album. So uh, we start with track one, Let It Go. We do start with track one, Let It Go, and I think what you can immediately hear is that bluesy slide riff that they sort of start with. Uh, and I love it because I think it's a, just a great, it's a great sort of announcement song where you hear the riff and then you hear the cymbals crash in and you know, it, you know exactly what you're getting from this album 
from this song. Yeah. This song is saying, this is what this album is. It's a straight ahead rocker. Um, what I like about this song and all the songs in this album is I feel like they're a little bit deceptive. And to go back to what you were just saying about Motorhead a little while ago, this is a band where if you take a step back and you listen to them, it just sounds very simple. But if you spend a little more time with some of the riffs and some of the ways they're layering things in each song, the it's a little bit more complex. And I actually pulled up an interview that uh, a guy by the name of John Sticks who used to be the editor of a magazine called Guitar for the Practicing Musician, he did a book about Def Leppard songs, and it was called, I think, Play It Like It Is from 1983. And in the beginning of it, he interviewed Steve Clark about some of these songs. So for some of these tracks, I'll have a Steve Clark snippet of what okay. he said. And <laughs> what he said about this one was, uh, it's a little more straightforward than anything we did on Pyromania but it's got some subtle things happening in it to make it more of a song. On the A section of the first go-around is one open note. Then the section is played staccato. Then the next time, there is another rhythmic variation, but it's always the same note. So we play it with a slightly different feel each time around to keep it from getting boring. This song has become a standard for us live. That description that he just gave, to me, is something that you hear throughout this album. You will hear the same basic notes and chords played in slightly different ways in the second verse, in the third verse. And I love that because it, it makes you keep paying attention. And that's one of the things I love about this album, but I, I thought it was great that he sort of described what that technique was here. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, funnily enough. This is another track. I did recognize this track when it started playing and I realized I had heard it before. And once again, it is on the soundtrack to SSX four. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> so this and Dio, uh, Lord knows how many others, you know, that I sort of have subconsciously absorbed from that game. And then, you know, we'll go, oh, because when I was listening to it in the game, I had no idea it was Def Leppard, you know. Um, and and it really does set out, the, set out its stall, you know, for the album, as you said. I mean, the fact that it's about getting ahead. It's like, oh, okay, so that's the tone of the album, is it? That's where we're going. Um, which, yeah, just, okay, so this is clearly going to be a sort of, glam rock cock rock party album exactly but yep. i really like that this is actually probably my favorite track on the album which is kind of a shame since it's the first track um but i really like that riff that main riff is it is quite unusual it's well written i mean yes it's well performed and you're you know the sort of the variations in performance throughout the song are important and that's great but it's also just well written it's really it's when you sort of look at what it consists of it's quite unusual it's atonal in places it sort of goes down instead of up on the second line, which is yes. a, you know unusual for rock music or pop music. Um, yeah, it's just you know it's a really really good riff, um, it, and it, it's got a structure to me that they they tend to repeat. Uh, not the same structure, but the same approach where you have, you know, Rick Savage playing his bass line, and during the the verses, you almost have a um, they're almost muting. Oh, the yeah, way yeah, yeah. that Definitely. they play and then but then they'll kick in with the chugs or then they'll they'll play you know they'll play the full chord harder and then you know so it, the, they're like constantly and that to me is when i when i talked about it being like almost like a garage band album or like a a small local gig album like this isn't the 
this isn't the, the emphasis on perfection that you would hear from later Def Leppard albums to the point where they became over-obsessed with every note being perfect and right. everything being played the same way. Like this is, this feels in many ways like they're improvising some of this stuff as they play it. And it reminds me of the way that musicians will play things differently live in order to never get bored of them because they're playing the same songs every right. night. Yeah. So they'll add a little, you know, a little flair here or there. And I feel like they do that within a lot of the songs on this album. Uh, you're right that the structure, the overall kind of, yeah, sort of mute the guitars in the verses uh, and let the drums and the bass carry it. And then you get to the pre-chorus and you start a little bit of chugging and then like lots of open chords and, you know, lag guitars for the chorus. That formula is repeated again and again and again throughout this album. Um, but again, you've got to think of it in context. In 1981, that wasn't quite the the obvious formula that we know now in rock music, you know, not to say that nobody had ever done it before because it was, it's a, it's a very bluesy sure. again, a very bluesy way of writing a song. Um, but it which is a very improvisational type of, yeah, it wasn't music. as prevalent as it, as it is now. So again, you know, sort of thinking about it in looking at it, listening to it, I should say in context, um, you know, it's kind of, I don't think people would have been people. Now you listen to it and you're like, Oh yeah, yeah. I know where this is going. I know this is going to go. But in 1981, you probably wouldn't because it just wasn't as common. Right. So track number two, which is another hit and run. In this song, you get the crash right out of the gate, right? So you get yes. the cymbals in the chord, and then they dial it back again a little bit. And this is another one where you have the the sort of subtle playing over the chords, and then it kicks in with bite. And I, I really like the bite that the, riff, the main riff has in this song. But then when you get to the chorus of this song, they're playing the same riff over again, but they're like leaving it open. You know yeah, what I mean? Like yeah. they're not closing it off after they play it. And I just let th that to me, like th these are the little hooks that keep me coming back to this album over and over again, because I just love the different ways that they're playing that stuff, even though it's basically the same riff throughout the song, Yeah, but they're just letting it open a little bit more when they get to the chorus. And then there's a great part of the song where um, in the back end, it gets real quiet and, and Joe Elliott's, you know, singing, you know, you kick me when I'm down. And then you hear him in the background say one, two, three, and they kick in with the background vocals hit and run. And he screams over the top of it. And it just like, it just explodes back in as the song sort of comes back around. And I just, I love the way that song comes back in and the solo. I really like too. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I was I was a little disappointed that this track slowed down to be honest. After the first track, I was expecting the next one to be another real rocker. Um and especially after the intro as well. That's a great intro and then it just suddenly like slows down and you know, goes a bit softer and yeah, I I wasn't I wasn't as keen. 
Um, and this is this is actually the first track where I thought, oh, hang on, this is like a you know a glam rock album from 1987. Um, uh-huh. Except, of course, ironically, lyrically, it's not cock rock at all. <laughs> this is probably the, one of the only tracks on the album that isn't about you know partying and having sex. <laughs> right. Um, and this is actually you were talking about the solo, but for me, this is the track where I made a note that like the solos. There are only a couple of tracks on this album where the solos for me really kind of grab me. I didn't think the solo on this was, it just doesn't do anything for me, you know? Um, yep. It also doesn't help the guitar tone on this track seems different to the first track and it's really feels really thin. There's not a lot of sort of beef to it at all. Uh, and when you combine that with Joe Elliott's voice, which is of course really kind of high pitched and, you know, quite reedy in places. Um, I don't know. The, the whole track just feels a bit sort of lightweight to me a bit uh, yeah a bit thin in the sound and it, it doesn't really grab me well the next song is probably the most acdc song on the album and that is high and dry the title track You talk about wearing your influences on your sleeve. Yeah. <laughs> this is the song where you're like, oh, this could actually be an ACDC song. Um, well, or again, a Motley Crue song from five years oh, later. You know? Yeah, sure. But definitely like the, just the main riff is very ACDC. And, and Steve Clark said of this riff, he said, it's just a riff that we came up with in rehearsal. The song seemed to take shape from there. It, it's a classic sort of rock song form. Uh, Pete Willis did the solo on this one. And, and here in the solo, you can totally hear Pete Willis's influence from Angus Young. Like he is channeling Angus Young during this solo. Without it, you can almost picture him strutting in your mind. In fact, <laughs> if you look at some of the old Def Leppard videos, you can see that Pete Willis, even on stage, had had sort of a, at times Angus like presence on stage. So for me, being a huge ACDC fan, like that's another reason that this music just sort of sucked me right in. Um, this is also a song where you start to hear the their love of pick slides because they do that a lot on this album. And this was one of the songs where you you get a very uh, you get a lot of pick slides. But high and dry, very, uh, and it's about going out drinking and partying on a Saturday night. So as you mentioned, this is, sort of fits with that overall tone of the album being a party album. And it's it's the signature example of that, I think, on this album. Yeah, um, I'm going to have to go back and listen to it, actually. I hadn't noticed all the pick slides. Um, I, I like a good pick slide, and I hadn't noticed oh, that dude. they were all over this, this album, album actually. has some epic pick slides on it. <laughs> and uh, But what I like about this song, too, though, is... There are times where it sounds like they're playing which is four, you know, that 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 it's four, sure. you know, strums. Where when you listen closer to it, it's five. It's right, right. as opposed to and you can almost you can hear that difference. And sometimes they might even just play it four 
as opposed to five. And that's another one of those things where you're, you're kind of listening like, is that an extra strum in there or not? Like, I just love that, 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 which otherwise than that, it's just a very straight ahead rock and roll song. Although I do love the fact that he's channeling Angus in that one. So, you know, of the first three songs, two of them are those sort of party style straight ahead bluesy rock and roll songs. Do you know how much, if any, involvement Joe Elliott has with the actual musical songwriting? Because I know he is a musician as well. He's not just a singer. Um, well, I can tell you that. Because didn't he originally join the band as a guitarist? You know what? I think you're right. I, I think- can I can tell you that from the liner notes, like he there. Th- this was a very collaborative uh, songwriting process. Like when you look at who's involved with each song, like the right. first song, Pete Willis, Steve Clark, and Joe Elliott. Uh, hit and Run, Rick Savage, Joe Elliott. High and Dry, Steve Clark, Rick Savage, Joe Elliott. And so they there didn't seem to be like one person who was directing all this. And Joe Elliott's name is on almost all of these songs. Right. But I wonder, is that just, right. But that's the thing. Is that just because of the lyrics or is it, you know, did he have an instrument? I only ask because we haven't really talked about his lyrics yet. Uh, And, you know, I'm always, especially with a band like this, where you have such an obvious lead vocalist frontman, uh, I'm always intrigued to, you know, to sort of know how much involvement it does this guy have in the music or does he just get presented you know, because a lot of bands do this. They'll just like, we'll right. write the music and then we'll give you the, we'll present you a song and you write words and a melody to go with it. You know, there's plenty of bands and good bands. I'm not knocking it at all. There's plenty of bands that do that. But there are also obviously bands where the lead singer is a musician themselves and they are more involved and they are involved, you know, they get together with the guitarists or whoever and actually musically put the songs together as well. I mean, Anthrax being a good example. Um my so, understanding yeah. of Joe Elliott is that he is musically involved in the band because when you read interviews and hear about what their musical style is today, a lot of that points to Joe Elliott's influence. Oh, really? And so, right. uh, yeah. And so I think that there was a better balance of that at this point in the band where you had you know, your Pete Willis and your Steve Clark uh, who were very rock and roll bluesy oriented and found a balance with Joe Elliott in creating those songs. I don't know that for sure, but that's, that's sort of what my educated guess would be is that he was involved very much in the songwriting, but they just had a better balance of influence at the time. And as the band went on, Joe Elliott's influence became more and more, which is where their musical direction. And I think Phil Collin fits more into Joe Elliott's camp in terms of their, their musical preferences and, and stylings. And so I think that's where you really saw the band go in a different direction. But, right, uh, right. but I think he was involved in a lot of the actual songwriting, although maybe one of our listeners would, would well, have some yeah, more. If anybody uh, knows, by all means, let, you know, let us know. We, we, uh, we never profess to be experts on this show. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure my buddy, John will chime in at some point because <laughs> yeah. he is a, he, he is a Pete Willis disciple. And, uh, you oh, know, really? this, right. this band is, this is now the second band of the two bands that I always cite when I talk about the fact that they are two completely different bands, like Queensryche. Def Leppard is a band that in their early albums were a completely different band than whatever their Turning Point album was. Right. You know, For Def Leppard, it was Hysteria, and they became something that didn't even resemble what Def Leppard used to be. And for Queensryche, it was after Operation Mindcrime, they ceased to be the Queensryche that everybody knew them by. And so, um, It's like pre and post Fish Marillion. Right, absolutely. Yeah, completely different band, even though only one band member changed. Like, the sound, you would not recognize them as the same band. And so that brings us to 
the quote-unquote ballad on the album, which is Bringing on the Heartbreak. Sorry, but it's true. four tracks in <laughs> and here comes the ballad but it's not as ballady as most of the hair albums that i listened to during the 80s like you know when you i think? think of like when i think of like kicks don't close your eyes when i think of cinderella when i think of you know um even some of the stuff that Dawkins did like it is a it is a sort of sorrowful sort of tune but when they get to the chorus and stuff like that, like there is some bite to the riffs in this song and there is some, it comes in heavy, uh, but it's definitely a ballad. I mean, there's no arguing that for sure. Wasn't this uh, one of the, one of their sort of early hit singles in America as well? It most definitely was. It was right. the song that before you knew them from Pyromania, you saw this video in heavy, heavy rotation. And I, right. I think that was probably the first time that I heard Def Leppard was bringing on the heartbreak. But again, if this is your first exposure to Def Leppard, you know, I probably saw them plenty of times <laughs> right. on, you know, uh, MTV. This was pre-Headbangers Ball. I'm, they were in a lot of this early rotation, but they weren't someone who I was like, oh, I got to go out and get that album. Right. It could have been literally any other song on the album would have had me hooked instantly. This song, it was like, it was a good song, but it'd you don't like, want to inter- It'd be like if Nothing Else Matters was like the first yeah. Metallica song you heard. You know? Which I'm sure for somebody it was. <laughs> it probably but, was, yeah. You know, <laughs> For, for, you know, for a rock and metal fan, like a ballad, you don't want that to be your entryway into a band because for a lot of us, it just means that we won't check them out even further, you right, know? And yeah. so I think it was either Foolin' or Rock of Ages on Pyromania when those videos started to go into heavy rotation on MTV. That was like, oh, wait a second. We need to check out more of this Def Leppard. Um, so yeah, so for, for me, it was like Pyromania and, and uh, High and Dry almost came out together in my mind because it was pyromania that led me to immediately go and pick up high and dry but there's some pretty cool lyrics in in this song i mean uh, you mentioned joe elliott's lyrics and how um they're not great this is an album where i could give a crap about the lyrics almost on this (laughs) there's a couple of there's maybe two or three songs on this album that I even pay attention to singing the lyrics like right. in my car right. when I sing. And they have good catchy choruses and stuff like that, but Joe Elliott has a tendency to to mumble through his lyrics even though he's screaming half the time and you don't even know what he's talking about. And that only gets worse as his um, career goes on to the point where then you look at some of the lyrics and he actually is writing gibberish, so it makes it even worse. But um, but yeah, the lyrics aren't a huge thing with me. But there's they, they would throw out some like mysterious lyrics. So you're listening to the song and he's talking about you're such a secret, misty eyed and shady, and it you know it, it paints a nice picture of this mysterious lady that you know he falls for and and brings him nothing but heartbreak and that kind of stuff. So uh, maybe it's because this is a ballad that I actually paid attention a little bit more to the lyrics on the song, but. But yeah, Joe Elliott, not somebody who I 
you know, I want a book full of his lyrics to right. keep next to my bed at night. Although one thing I will say, I was, I, I admit I was expecting to be kind of rolling my eyes at 1981 sexual politics uh, throughout, you know, most of this album. And actually they're not bad on that front. I mean, yeah, the first song is about getting head and this yep. one is about, yeah, a mysterious gypsy beauty, which I'm pretty sure you couldn't get away with now. Um, right. But for the, you know, for the majority, considering the time, it's actually not, I'm not saying that it's progressive in any way, <laughs> but it's no, also, but we, it's also not offensive in modern, you know, to a modern mindset. So right. you're not cringing the whole time right. you're going back and listening to this. Which I was expecting to, to be honest. <laughs> there will definitely be some albums where we will be cringing through oh, a I'm lot sure. of lyrics on those <laughs> albums. And yeah, so on the cringe meter, this is like a one maybe. This, this is very low on the cringe meter. This song does also bring home uh, that they were heading towards that big stadium sound and especially yes. the drum sound that they had by the time of Hysteria. Because, I mean, the song's built in that fashion, but also if you listen specifically to the drums during the chorus, they are proper power ballad, that sort of classic stadium reverb <laughs> sound yes. on every snare, you know? And it's only on the choruses. Once the once they get back into the verse, it's just a regular snare sound. But yeah, come the chorus, it's yeah. And this is this is what Steve Clark had to say about in 1983. Keep in mind, this is when that interview was done. He says uh, about bringing on the heartbreak. It's always been a special song for us. We haven't done too many songs in this way. So I think that tells you the time of the interview in 1983 because then they did all of their songs that way. But right. at the time, he said, we haven't done too many songs in this way. It's sort of a rock ballad. The actual guitar sounds we got through playing two guitars slightly out of tune with each other. It gave the sound sort of a spacey chorus-like effect, which I agree. That, that is definitely mm, yeah, yeah. present here. There is sort of an otherworldly type of feel to this song, which is, which is why even though it is a ballad, I find it an interesting song. Um, and then as this song winds down and goes into our next song, which is Switch 625. In the MP3 versions of it that you will get nowadays off of Amazon or wherever you're getting your music, there will be a pause in between. But on the cassette of this and on the vinyl of this, these songs roll right into one another. So Bringing on the Heartbreak ends, and that bass line continues through the end of Bringing on the Heartbreak and rolls right into Switch 625. My iTunes is, actually did roll straight through. Oh, uh, did it really? Yeah, to the point where I, I was making my notes about Bringing on the Heartbreak, and suddenly... Towards the end, I started typing, wow, actually, this is more like it. I love this riff in the coda. And then I looked at it and realized, oh, no, it's the next track. <laughs> it's an actual whole song in and yeah. of itself. Yeah. A three-minute and three-second song, uh, to be exact. Uh, and this is what Steve Clark said about this. He said, I had this basic intro riff in a chord section. I thought it would be good if we tried to put all these different melodies over the top of each other. It's an idea that we later explored on Pyromania. At the end of the song, there are three different sections coming together. It's difficult to do because it sounds very cluttered if you don't do it right. But because the idea worked here, we decided to do it on Pyromania. It was really part of Heartbreak because we didn't know how to finish that song. 
we decided to go right into Switch 625. I did a solo on Heartbreak, but in the instrumental with all these guitar things going on, it seemed pointless to do another solo. So just some sort of insight as to why the song is structured this way. One, mm. they couldn't end bring it on the Heartbreak the way they wanted to, so they rolled it right into the next song. And, uh, and I like the core riff in this song. I think the I core actually... riff in this is one of the best on the album. I really, yep. really like it. I actually think it's, it's kind of a shame that this is an instrumental because musically it is one of the most interesting things on the album. And if they had made it like two minutes longer and, you know, stuck some lyrics in there, this may actually have become my favorite song on the album because yeah, musically it is great. I wish it was the rest of the album was more like this. Yeah. And it's, and it's a cool way to end the first side of the album. So this is the last song. Oh, is it the last song on side one? Right, right. So you went out of Bringing on the Heartbreak, you went into Switch 625, which to me is a good palate cleanser off the ballad. Well, and it even has, dare I say it, it even has an almost goth rock progression going on there in the middle of the song, about sort of maybe just past the halfway mark. Uh, You get the, the repeated scale where the scale doesn't change, but the chord the chords are changing underneath it, the power chords underneath it, and you you kind of if you listen to that in isolation, you could be like, oh, that's a bit goth. <laughs> Is that also where they're, where they're singing over the top of it, just the background, like ah? I don't. And it's going think... dun 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 dun. No, I don't they're... think so. Um, I oh, I'd have to uh, I'd have to sort of you know play it to you and go that bit. <laughs> But no, I don't yeah, think I there's really any like lyrics over that. Yeah, but yeah, it is. It's really good, as I say. I, and I didn't even realize that it was a a separate track the first couple of times I listened through the album. Um, and yeah, I it, really a lot like of times it. those those tracks feel like filler, or you know, they just don't work with the rest of the album. And I do feel like Switch Six Twenty Five really flows out of Heartbreak well. I mean, you just said it yeah. feels like it is just an extension of that song. Yeah. Um, so it feels like it fits good here. Yeah, absolutely. And the best part of that song, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So then we flip over to side two of our cassette or our vinyl, and we start with uh, track six, which is You Got Me Running. What do you think about this one? It doesn't sound like this is one of your favorite songs on the album. Who who knew? Who knew that Def Leppard were such a cock rock band? I mean, just th- this really brings it home. This track more than any other after listening, you know, to the previous tracks really brought home like, oh my goodness, this is, you know, you can bet your bottom dollar that this uh, album was in the collection of people like Nikki Six. And, oh, uh, hell yes. you know, um, Sebastian back and all those guys, it's like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Cause like I said, I'd never heard this album before, but yeah, listening to it. And especially with this track, I'm like, wow, the, yeah, this is, see, I can, here's the thing. I can absolutely see the appeal. If this is what you're into, or if this is what you were into in 1981, I can clearly see the appeal of this album. It is well-made. It is quite innovative. It is very, very, you know, sort of party time glam rock. Uh, and in 1981, it would have sounded very, very fresh. And if that's what you were into, 
you know, if that's what I'd been into, I would have run out and bought it. And I probably would have the same love for the album that you do now. Um, but in, you know, that, that's never been my thing. Uh, sure. and, and even in 1981, you know, I was listening, I was actually listening to a lot of pop music, but it was stuff like Adam and the Ants. Um, sure. And rock-wise, you know, I was already listening to, like, Genesis, Sabbath, and Motorhead. So yep. <laughs> this is just, you know, it's not my thing. But, like I say, and this track really kind of crystallizes that feeling that if I had been into this, I absolutely would have loved this album, I'm sure, because in, if you're going to do that sort of music, this album and this track especially kind of crystallizes it. It really is, you know, very well-done form of that style of music. This second half of this album, for me as a Def Leppard, as an old school Def Leppard fan, features two of the greatest songs that they've ever written, and this is not one of them. However, this is not one of them. Oh, I'm surprised. Not one of them. However, it is exactly what you just said. What I love about this album and this time of Def Leppard is that they were having fun. And this album is, there's a lot of songs on this album that are just straight fun rockers, and this is one of them. And I feel like this album is just perfectly encapsulates like the energy that they brought to this period of their music. And Steve uh, Clark even says here, he says, this is more of a pop song. We just decided we wanted to have a bit of fun. I did the staccato eighth section with a police sort of feel over the heavy riff at the beginning. So which I totally can feel the police uh, feel in, in the beginning of the song, the way that they, they play that over the riff. And I, lo- I love that about the song. This is also a song that features some crazy pick slides, especially when you get into the solo. And there's a great finish. And I think they said Pete Willis did the solo on this one, where he, it just feels like the solo is being completely improvised because there's parts during the solo where he's mixing in little slides and stuff like that, and like a little bit of machine gun chug and stuff like that. And it's just, it has this great sort of sloppy back against the other guitar player standing up at the front of the stage. And just this is the solo that I played tonight for this song, even though it's going to be different tomorrow night and different the night after. And, and that to me is what really captures the energy of this time of Def Leppard, where they were just a bunch of kids having fun playing rock music and doing it in their way. And, and so I love the energy of this song, even though it's not one of my favorite Def Leppard songs. Right. It is full of energy. I think that's kind of what I was trying to say. Yeah. Was that, you know, whether you like it or not. And like I say, this is not for me, but I can feel the energy coming through. They absolutely are clearly loving playing it. And what you say about improvising the solo, actually, that might even have been the case. You know, it's not that unusual if you have, you know, a really, really good lead guitarist who's got the chops. Um, It's not that unusual for bands to just, like, let them sit and improvise, and then they'll just pick the best one, you know, and they'll play, like, ten different solos, and then they'll just go, oh, let's have number three, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and they won't replay it. They'll just use that take. Now, you also had Steve Clark, Pete Willis, and Rick Savage, uh, and Rick Allen, all of them sang background vocals. And one of the things that I love about early Def Leppard, I love their background vocals. I love the way that they sound together on this album and kind of on Pyromania, but definitely this album and on Through the Night. When they got to Hysteria, they really started to overproduce those background vocals, and they just sounded synthesized. Right. And they were still at a point in their career where they hadn't done that yet. And so, to me, it just highlighted that they they sang well together, and I liked that about them. But they but they didn't have this overly polished 
feel to them at this point, which I really like. Well, and there's also a difference between backing vocals and like double and triple tracking. Uh, and I don't know which, you know, they sort of went with in the later days. And as you say, it was so processed anyway, who would tell? But there is something to be said for a band where, because you can hear, you know, you can hear yep. when the backing vocals are different voices, when it is clearly not the lead singer doing a double track or doing their own backing vocals, which, you know, some bands have to do because nobody else in the band can sing. <laughs> well, that happens a lot with uh, with Megadeth. You know, not that they sing anything like this, but with Megadeth, a lot of their a lot of their choruses and it's just Dave's voice tracked over and over again. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you can tell the difference. And yes, this this album at least very much does sound like a bunch of guys in the back of the room shouting out while Joe Elliott sings at the front. Which, you know, gives it a very different, and as you say, an almost live sounding feel. That's one of the things I think that contributes to it, as you say, sounding almost like you're watching a local band, you know, down the bar at the end of the street. It sounds to me sometimes like this album was recorded in the living room of a house that they found that was abandoned and they were all crashing there in between gigs. Like that's right. that's kind of the vibe I get from them sometimes. And they, they did a video, I don't know if it's me and my wine or... Uh, I forget which one it is, but it might be me and my wine, but the, where they're literally playing like inside of a house. And that is the picture that's always in my mind when I listen to these early Def Leppard albums. So, so yeah, I really like that song. Very fun song. Then we get into track seven, which is Lady Strange. And for me, one of my top five all-time Def Leppard songs. Oh, really? This is one of the two songs on this backside of this album that I just adore. Um, I love the opening of this song, and I love when they back off of that and just play the riff. It's just I just love the whole opening of this song, and I, I love the the rhythm of it. I love the 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 chorus like i i love all of it top to bottom i absolutely love the song hmm. this is one where for <laughs> going in i thought oh here we go a good dodgy sexual politics but actually no not a, i completely misread it it's not not that at all uh i was dreading some kind of well you can imagine um but actually no i do really like this i wouldn't say it's one of my favorites in the album but i do like it better than many other tracks on the album um i really like the chorus riff the verses I mean, a lot of the verses on this album just all, you know, you could swap them around and nobody would notice, sure. you know? Yep. Um, but the chorus riff, that descending scale. Oh, uh, so good. I mean, yeah, again, we hear stuff like that all the time now, but in 1981, that would have been quite forward thinking to be playing yes. that underneath Joe Elliott's vocals. Um, it's a really good riff. And I love that, the Iron Maiden bridge. I mean, there's no other way of describing it. This is, 
somebody went to a maiden gig and went hmm <laughs> and stuck a maiden riff yep. in like you know in the last like 90 seconds of this song you got the galloping power chords and a proper solo a really this is actually my favorite solo it's the it's only a great so- solo it's the only solo that really stood out to me if i'm honest it was it feels like the last sort of 90 seconds of the song feel like the closest that this album comes to proper metal you know, to real the, heavy metal the rather than just quick rock. Pick slide at the end is just so freaking awesome. Where it goes, tune tune. It's yeah. just so <laughs> so freaking good. Like that, that still gets me. That's like a fist pumper for me. Like when you when you hear that. Like I just, I love it. I love this song top to bottom. Yeah. It's just, uh, and it's just that that descending during the chorus. Like it, yeah, that's the it's kind just of unusual. Stuff. And, and, yeah. This is what I meant earlier about, you know, it being, yeah, this is stuff is not complex to play. Yes, they're playing it well and they're putting in little, you know, changes here and there, but it's not, you know, sort of ultra complex stuff to play, but it is well written. It's thoughtfully written. And, you know, I can appreciate that. And here's what he says about that. So this this guy, John Sticks, that was interviewing him said, Lady Strange has an interesting middle section that's pretty different when it goes into the solo. And Steve Clark said, that song had the same chord riff all the way through. We thought we needed something to break it up so it wouldn't be so monotonous. The part you mentioned split it up nicely. Otherwise, the song would have been a drag. So yeah. I just I love that level of insight into like how they did You can tell just from the stuff that Steve Clark says, like obviously very thoughtful approach to how they they even – structure their chords and stuff within their songs, which is really good. Yeah. Um, which So we move on to track eight, which is On Through the Night. And On Through the Night is a nod to their previous album, which was titled On Through the Night. Although from everything that I've read, this wasn't a leftover track from the previous album. This was just sort of, uh, they decided to title the song as a nod to it. Steve Clark says, I don't remember this song. There was a TV program in Switzerland that uses this for its theme song. It was fun to name a song after the actual title of the first album. I do recall that there are a lot of different sections in this one. To be honest, this is not one of my favorites. He said, but the album needed something a bit more up-tempo to split it up. When we do a record, we always try to vary the tempo and the feel. So I find that interesting because of all the songs on the album, like this this song is one that if you took it off the album, I wouldn't miss it. Right. Hmm. And it's a little long, too. It's probably the longest song outside of the ballad on the album, which is, the song is just over five minutes. It- and... It's a good song, but it doesn't really do anything for me. Yeah, I mean, it took me a while to realize that it's even, it's a road song, you know, it's, right. it, which again, now, by now is a cliche. Like every band does like, oh, here's our song about being on the road for months on end. Um, again, in 1981, probably not quite so common. Um, the main riff in this, I think is actually, you know, that's a bit metal. 
that's quite different for them compared to the rest of the album. Head, yeah. Right? If yeah. you just strip everything else away and it dan dig dan dig dan dig dan yeah. like it's, that's that's a good solid riff. Yeah, it is. It, that's a good riff. And then it gets to the chorus and and not so much. And yeah, I mean I I'm not one to judge which tracks you could take off this album and you wouldn't miss because sure. I could probably do that with half of the tracks on the album. But yep. Uh, but maybe I have a higher opinion of this than than Steve Clark himself because, as I say, the main riff I thought was worth it. You know, that at least was different and interesting. So they they well, did at least achieve that. And he does talk about varying up the tempo. And one of the things that is different with this song than with some of the other songs on the album is this is a song that actually like decelerates when you hit the chorus. Yes. So it's got this great driving main riff. And then it takes its foot off the pedal when you get to the chorus. Whereas with a lot of the other songs, it's the, other it's way the exact around. Yeah. opposite. Yes. Yeah. And then and then they come in and I prefer the other approach. I, I um, will say, I respect the fact that he varied it here. Right. I will say that it, I, I wish bands wouldn't do that where they name tracks after previous albums uh-huh. um, or name albums after previous tracks because it gets very, very confusing. Paradise Lost did it. Which they released an album called Shades of God. It was the one before Icon, the album we talked about. And then two albums later, they write a song called Shades of God. And I'm just, don't do that. Right. <laughs> There's no need. Don't do yeah, that. There's no need for that. <laughs> you could literally name a song anything. Yeah, just unnecessary, you know? <laughs> yeah. So then we get to track nine, which is Mirror, Mirror. And for me, the second song on this album that is one of my top 10, top five all-time Def Leppard tunes. Interesting. I just freaking love this song. Okay. I love the intro. I love the way the bass and the drums kick in after they play the first the, the riff a couple times. Um, I love the plotting chorus where, again, they're playing almost muted you know, they're just barely accenting the bass and the drums during the riff. And then, like the, when they kick in with the riff, I, I love the structure of this song. And to me, it's one of the songs where I feel like Joe Elliott has more emotion poured into this song than a lot of the other songs on the album. Like it just, I, I feel like he... I think he just sings better on this track than most of the others I, on the just, album. Frankly, I just think he does a better job of singing on this track than most of the rest of the album. Not that he's a bad singer, of course, but I think this is... I, the reason I say it's interesting is not because I dislike it, quite the opposite. This, along with Let It Go, is my fa- like probably my favourite track on the album. Yep. I think this is actually a really, really good song, and I'm just surprised that we both <laughs> have the same favourites for once. Um, and there's some the subtleties like that when they do the chorus when they you know take a look into my eyes and it goes dun, 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 like he it 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 creeps up on you yeah. because they play it harder and louder as he plays through that riff like it's almost like that riff is coming through a tunnel and it just <laughs> explodes out the back end of it and i just i love it's got like this growly feel like it's yep it's sort of creeping up on you oh, i, well, I the, just the love guitars the guitars have got it. plenty of middle 
again. Uh, yes. You know, very, very bluesy sounds to the guitars. I like that the intro riff is kind of slightly atonal. That's quite nice. The verse riff is just, again, you could swap that out with any other verse on the album. But the chorus, I agree. Yeah, the the everything coming together, the riff, the lyrics, the melody, all combined. It's very catchy. It works really well. Um, and the contrast in the riff from the, the high-pitched chords to the low single note scale immediately following for the like the second half of each line it just works really well there's something about that that you know just works really well especially with Juliet's vocals um yeah it's i was surprised if i'm honest sort of after i'd listened to the album a couple of times that this is the only track on the album that i was humming it's the only one where, you know, the tune would sort of get on a loop, the chorus tune would get on a loop in my head. Um, and yeah, and then sort of listen, you know, when I then listened to it another couple of times, it was making notes. I was like, actually, yeah, this is one of the best tracks on the album. Because it's the, the way they put it together. And like at the so what Steve Clark says about this is he says, this is one we still do live and everybody likes it. And again, he says this in 83. There's a section in here where we first recorded separate strings to make chords. And the guy who interviewed him says, I found it interesting that at one point the vocals and the guitar line were the same. And Steve said it was so simple that we ended up adding the guitars. If we had done something across it, that would have cluttered the song. You wouldn't have heard the vocals. We did it exactly the same and it worked really well. Interesting. Yeah, maybe that's because in in the chorus, the lyrics are quite fast. It delivers them quite quickly. And yeah, maybe if the guitar was doing something different, it would get jumbled and you wouldn't be able to make out the words. That's Yeah. This is one of the few songs that I pay attention to the lyrics in because I think it's about struggling with like substance abuse and stuff like that. He says uh, one of the lyrics is oh, mirror, think? mirror. I think so. He said, this is the one that makes me think that. He says, mirror, I've mirror. got a note going like, I haven't got a fucking clue what this song's about. Well, he says, <laughs> hang in there with that crack in your eye. You make me stumble, make me blind time after time in line by line. So I. Oh, I missed that. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I attributed that to him doing Coke off of the mirror. Um, but I just love that. And then my favorite part of the song is the way that it ends, where it gets very quiet and you just have the thumping bass. And then he says, take a look, take a look. And the thing whole, uh, kicks back in again and you get this great sort of ending solo to the song as, the, as he's screaming over the top of it and they're singing the background vocals. Like it just, it's just such a great song. I really, really love this song from Def, Def Leppard. Like I said, one of my all-time favorites. And I think, unfortunately, for songs like Lady Strange, which I also love, Mirror Mirror is such a freaking great song that it overshadows a lot of the other ones that might be considered classics right at least for Def Leppard on this album so I'm just uh, I'm just genuinely surprised that you and I you know sort of share a favorite on an album like this (laughs) for me it's it's the like there's an emotional hook with this song that the other songs don't have like and I think a, that is Joe Elliott's performance. As I yeah. say, I think he just sings it better. I th- just I think this is his best vocal performance on the album uh, in terms of emotion, in terms of range, delivery. Yeah. It's all just like you know, th- this is clearly his best effort. And he, you know, the couple times I've seen them live was not a great live vocalist. Um, and I don't oh, really? think that I've never seen them live. So. Better as time has gone on, although I have not seen them a lot of times, so I couldn't necessarily speak to that. But like, this is the Joe Elliott that I love from Def Leppard. This is this is the song I would point to if if you know if I thought of what I really loved about him as a singer. So, right. uh, so that's a great tune. And then we get into the final tune of the album, which is No No No. <laughs>
Yeah. Um, I, I do think I may have heard this one before, actually. Uh, but I, if so, it's like, you know, in the background of a, a rock pub when I was a teenager or something, you know, <laughs> um, I, it's not one that I wouldn't, if you'd played it me, I wouldn't say, oh yeah, that's that Def Leppard song, but sure. hearing it a couple of times, I'm like, actually, I think I probably have heard this before somewhere. Uh, it's got a great main riff. That main, uh, verse riff is actually really good. Um, the, and then the chorus Ironically for them, like the chorus riff, I think is not very interesting at all. Uh, although no. I, I do have to admire a song that actually slows down, not just slows down, but slows down to a sort of syncopated halftime offbeat for the chorus. That, especially for a closing track, that's kind of ballsy. <laughs> yeah, and st- so Steve Clark said, uh, it's, an all and out, it's an out and out heavy metal rocker. We did it for a bit of fun more than anything else. Pete Willis did the guitar solo on the song. So... Uh, which again is just sort of a frenetic, almost feeling yeah. improvised sort of uh, sort of solo. It's n- it's nothing that you'll remember after the record's over, but it's it's got a, this song just has a fun sort of feel to it, and it's them sort of wrapping up the album and and sort of uh, in true party fashion. Apparently, the end of this track where you get the echoes of him shouting no. Apparently, on the original vinyl that was cut into a loop you know oh, I'm, I'm, i remember because yeah. it was the same on the cassette and i had it oh right okay because you know on, on albums that you know they would quite often cut an endless loop in the groove at the center of the uh disc and yeah so it literally just went round and round yep with him shouting no endlessly <laughs> it's awesome because you get like you get like five seconds of that at the end of the song in this version of the album but like on the cassette which is what i had it went it just went until the cassette ended. So it just, he just kept screaming, no, 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 no. And Excellent. that went all the way to the end of the cassette, which is really kind of cool. And again, to me, sort of encapsulates the level of fun that Def Leppard was having at this right, time right. in their career. Just just being a party band and playing. Obviously, for a couple of their members, they were having a little bit too much fun. But this is just a good, it's a great way to end this album because it makes you want to start playing it over again. So I, I do like it, even though like this song is nothing super special. It's a fun way to end the album. And as we've talked about album endings can be very difficult Yep. and this is not a bad one. It's, it's not bad. Yeah. I mean, you know, I would never, I would never say that it's like one of the best tracks on the album or something, but it's, it's fine, you know, in general. Um, but yeah, so overall I was, I was a little surprised that this album was better than I was expecting because I am used to the hysteria era, Def Leppard, you know, and I didn't realize that they had that kind of bluesy influence. I didn't realize that they were such glam rock pioneers and innovators, which, uh, you know, as I say, gives me a sort of a a small amount of newfound respect for them. Um, But overall, yeah, it's not something that I'll be listening to a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it, it's it's an album that for me, I still am a Def Leppard fan of this era of their music, and always hopeful that there'll be some sort of return to form. Although that's not going to happen now, you know, right, nowadays, right. nowadays. But well, uh, especially with two Pete of the gu- with two of the guitarists that were on this album, you know, one's left and one's dead. So forget right, it. Right, and it's know? clear that the guy they brought in, Vivian Campbell, is not one that they're letting drive their musical sound these days. So, right, yeah. so you're not getting that either because uh, because he can certainly shred. But yeah, I, I saw these guys a couple times in concert. Once I believe with Tesla. 
but the time that I was able to pull up the set list from is they actually played, we have a big uh, exposition here in Western Massachusetts called the Big E, and it's like this agricultural and entertainment show held at a big exposition grounds over the course of like two or three weeks, and every once in a while, they'll book a big band to come in and play one of the days at this thing. And so it happened in 2000 that they actually got Def Leppard. Now at that time, this was, you know, very far into the, you know, the pop version of Def Leppard, but they still played Let It Go and they still played Bring It On The Heartbreak from this one. They peppered in a lot of hysteria songs and adrenalized songs and and stuff like that, which were not good. So I wasn't a huge fan of this concert of theirs but they still do keep a couple of the old tunes in the rotation and the music sounds great joe elliott not not so much at the time again but i haven't seen him recently so i would be interested in seeing def leppard again they just toured through here or they are touring in the next month or so with sticks and tesla tesla is a band that i absolutely love and have seen before and would see again in a heartbeat sticks i have never seen but i'd like to see them just to say that i have seen them but that's the problem with def leppard nowadays is that they do arena tours and their tickets are well over 100 bucks and for me like it's just not yeah no <laughs> i haven't seen anything from their performance live recently that would lead me to believe that it's worth that amount of money for me to go see them so Fr- frankly, for, uh, there are very, very few bands that I would be willing to pay more than a hundred bucks to Me see. Too. You know, even yep. like some of my favorite bands. You know, I'm just like, really? I mean, yep. Like maybe for that, um, uh, the Plovdiv thing with the orchestra that Paradise Lost did sure. you know, last year. Sure, that you know, I might have paid a hundred bucks. For, but just to go and see the the five guys on stage playing i'm not sure i would pay that much money you know and i love that band right. everybody know but i'm not sure i would pay a hundred dollars to see them you know <laughs> yeah to me even 50 bucks is pushing it you know yeah, like i think yeah. 50 dollars or less is a reasonable price for a concert ticket we, when we went to see queen drake a few weeks ago they were 25 bucks a piece and when you throw in the fees it cost me about 85 bucks for three tickets to the show that's not bad that's reasonable you know, I'll, yeah, I'll do yeah. that all day long um, the Megadeth tickets cost me like 40 bucks. Megadeth and Suicidal for 40 bucks? Sure, I'll pay yeah, that any yeah. day of the week. So, But yeah, when you start getting over $100 for one seat, yeah, that's, that's like Rolling Stones my wife kind and my of. kids to. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's too bad too because if those tickets were 40 bucks, I would totally take my kids to see that even just for the few songs that they play from back in the day right. because Def Leppard is one of those bands that has sold billion, you know, 100 million records. It would be cool for them to see them, but I, I'm not going to pay you know, no. 300 bucks for us to go <laughs> to, to take a, the family, the yeah. Def Leppard concert for crying out loud. So, yeah. uh, but man, well, plus your fees, you probably end up paying more like 400, but I will tell you that this album is an album that my nine year old son has heard many, many times. And he's also heard on through the night and pyromania. And so, you know, and that's Def all, <laughs> and that's all exactly. he's heard. <laughs> you know what? I, I would say once a year I throw in hysteria because I, I try to think through and I don't know if you do this with any albums, but I, I literally listen to the album trying to produce it in my head of like, okay, if I was going to make this album again, if I was in the studio with this album, this is what I do to this song. Because uh, I know there's right, a good right. album in there and it drives me crazy to listen to how overproduced it is. But uh, Do you know, it's but, funny. Yeah. You'd, you'd think that I would do that, but actually I don't. I do it occasionally with songwriting, like where I'll listen to something and I'll think, oh, I wish they'd, you know, sort of put an extra riff in here or changed a little bit there. But in terms of sort of the production and the mix, I actually, that's not something I ever do. I wonder why that is. This is one of the few albums I do that with because most albums, what stands out to me is good production. 
and right, I'll be like, oh, yeah. wow, I really love the sound that they got out of Like Mutt Lang, we talked about. I love what he gets out of these albums, but he also worked on Hysteria with them, and, and uh, I would, I'm sure there's some great documentaries out there about the making of Hysteria, but I can't bring myself to, uh, to really go down that road. But Def Leppard will always have a, a special place for me, and this is an album that is one that I still listen to very frequently. So. Yeah. Actually, I've just realised, I tell a lie, there are some albums where I kind of do that, like the early Testament albums. But it, yep. it's, I don't sort of get into specifics. I just listen to it, and every time I think, oh, I wish the production was just better. Yeah. Or just better. <laughs> a lot yeah. of those early metal albums where, you know, the bands were blowing half of their meager production budget on drugs and stuff like that, you know, the, the, the early well, Megadeth albums suffer from that too. Well, and frankly, where people just didn't know yet how to record, how to engineer recording a lot, you know, stuff like thrash metal. I think that yep. really, it, you know, a lot of it is just down to it's nobody's fault. It's just that a lot of this stuff was so different and new at the time that people literally just did not know how to record it properly. And everybody yep. was learning as they went, you know. All right. Okay. Uh, I think that's uh, enough for this week. So, oh, one thing I forgot to mention at the top of the show, and that is uh for long time listeners just to confirm we are definitely doing the uh the choice of format where we're putting out shows less quickly uh so that we can incorporate your feedback into the show so if you have anything to say to us about the shows about this show let us know and we will you know we'll get into that on the next show the votes that we got from listeners were overwhelmingly and by that I literally mean I think we had one vote from a listener saying that they would prefer to have uh, the show put out, you know, faster and they didn't care about the feedback. And to that listener, I can only say, sorry, but everybody else, literally everybody else who voted, voted in the other direction. So that's what we're doing. So uh, we were putting out shows, hopefully every three weeks, maybe every four weeks. Um, and, you know, we'll take the time to get your feedback in between and, you know, sort of, uh, talk about that a little at the start of each show. Yeah, and you mentioned. Uh, I know you're going to mention the 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 Facebook and and uh, Twitter stuff too. But I know not everybody uses Facebook, so there are other places for people yes. to give us feedback too. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And remember, if you enjoy the show, please spread the word. Rate us on iTunes, and you can support us directly at Patreon.com/slash/ThrashItOut. And if you want to get in touch, uh, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com for links to email and Twitter. So you can email us, you can tweet at us. We're both on Twitter, you know. I mean, I'm not on Twitter 24-7, but I check my mentions. Even if I don't always check my timeline, I always check my mentions. So, uh, you know, you can tweet at us whenever you like, email us if you like. Or, of course, join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out it's very important that you put the groups in there in the middle because we've read out the url a couple of times and missed that bit and i discovered today that if you do that you go to a defunct band called thrash it out <laughs> that split up like two years ago who's probably happy to be getting some emails and, uh, and mentions <laughs> yeah. now <laughs> so yeah it's facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out all right so homework what are we going to talk about next time give it to me uh okay and this was this was going to be down the list of volume two, but obviously with, uh, you know, the events over Christmas, I just, you know, it, I had to push it up. So we are going to talk about Sacrifice by Motorhead. Awesome. Uh, it is from 
1995. I was just looking that up. I couldn't remember if it was 94 or 95. It's from 95. Second album with Mickey D as drummer. Um, and again, this is an album that I kind of, I could almost have an unjustly maligned because uh, I never hear Motorhead fans talking about it. And for me, it's like one of their best albums. Like post, I mean, you had the classic, we'll talk about this next week, but you had the classic era of like Overkill and Bomber and Ace of Spades. But then in the modern era, I honestly think this is like the best album they made in the last 15, 20 years. Um, and I don't hear people talking about it at all. So I really want to sort of turn people on to this album. So yes, it's called Sacrifice by Motorhead 1995. Go and grab it uh, and listen to it in advance of the next show and we will go through it. Awesome. This is this is excellent. I'm so happy to be back into it. And, you know, if the length of this episode is any indication, I mean, obviously we... We are very excited to talk about heavy metal music again. So. <laughs> Aren't we always? <laughs> yeah. All right. See you next time.